My dad used to call me Robin Hood. And <laughs> the reason for that was, you see, where I would make my money is on the antiques. I firmly believed if you had an ordinary job, you were entitled to a nice three-piece suite in front of your fire at Christmas, the very same as Joe's soap that has loads of money. So I used to buy fabrics from Dublin, from Cable Street, which I used to haunt, from Chivago's and Morrissey's, all them. And down would come the bales of fabric. But I would let you come in and you would look at the fabric and you would choose your three-piece suite. But you come to me with antiques and I would tell you, this is going to be expensive. And you would say to me, well, look, I know it was my grandmother's chair and it means a lot to me and we've had it other places and we know it's going to be very expensive. We've seen work you've done and we're prepared to pay it. So on foot of that, this is why my dad was saying that I was robbing the rich and I was giving it to the poor, yeah, which yeah, technically yeah. is why he was calling me Robin Hood. Yeah. One particular day, I had this lady, she was a farmer's wife. I did a lot of antiques for her. She came this particular day, but prior to that, my dad, I was in the office and I was making out the bill. And let's say for argument's sake, the bill was £350, we'd say for argument's sake. And he looked over my shoulder and he said, that's pricey enough, he said, Annie. Yeah, I said, Dad, but there's a lot to it, like, you know. And anyway, he said, look, I'm going out to the bathroom. And he went off. And when he came back, he, he looked and he says, mercy for Jesus, how did it go up to 750 I, well, I forgot. Bloody, bloody, bloody. Oh, Christ, I'm not going to be here, he said, when that woman comes. <laughs> Forget it, he said, I'm over here. So anyway, we were walking away, and the next thing, a little tap on the door, and in she comes. And it came too, delighted with everything. And now, what do I owe you? Now, my dad was over in the workshop over there, and there was, there was this banging going on where he was working, and all of a sudden, the banging stopped. <laughs> and I said, well... This is it now. And I opened the book and I said, do you 750? She said, Mrs. Watkins, are you quite sure? She said, that's enough. <laughs> when she was gone, yeah. he left. Went over to, to the pub, over to Clancy's and sat down and had a pint. He was physically incapable of continuing work. Steady his nerves. <laughs> he said, you know something? He said, you're dead right. You value what you do. What you do, yeah. Where was he from, your father, originally? Cork. From Yall or from the city? The city. Yeah. City. Um, Washington Street. Yeah. By the courthouse. He was. Had they business, like a shop? He did, did yeah. He did. He only had a a workshop. He worked for a while with um, Casey's Furniture. Now, Casey's Furniture is the most expensive place you could, honest to God, stand outside and look in. The skills, though, that those men had, like mm-hmm. to make kitchens and mm-hmm. all handmade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Beautiful. handmade. Yeah, yeah. Like, but but down through the years of working with my dad, and he would tell me about the different woods. I always thought there was one wood mahogany. Yeah. He telling me about the grain of the wood and how to treat it and how to bring it up and. You know, the, the patina, the patina is the, the touch, mm, the mm. smoothness of it. Um, you have to love it because I'll tell you, it's very hard work. Mm. When Noel was arrested, put on trial initially for Nora's death, mm-hmm. and then the situation happened with the 
forensic, it was the pathologist, was it? The pathologist had died. Yeah, that's the Mr. Coakley. So, like, yeah. what was the talk like at the time? I mean, were you embarrassed going out? Were your, was your mother embarrassed? Like, It didn't embarrass me that much because I was down in Yall and I was, like, within my work situation and nobody would have known me as long. You were okay. I was Watkins now. So you were saved as such. Um, but I do know my dad... My dad hung his head at that time. My dad didn't lift his head to the day he died. My dad took that very hard. When my dad was working that time, he, when he got the first heart attack, he was only 47. But Noel was still breaking the law in those years, those intervening years. And there was women involved and, and assaults and that kind of thing. Um, my dad would go into work. They would say to my dad, what were you up to for the weekend? as a jibe. They knew it was Noel Jr. But they got this jibe in to my dad. And that used to cut my father's heart in two. That he would be thought of in that way. Because you couldn't be further away from the kind of person Noel Long is to the type of man my father. If Noel lived till he was 150 years old, he couldn't put one foot into a shoe that my father wore. He couldn't. Was he jealous of your relationship with your father? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. He told me I robbed him of his father's love. And I remember him standing at the door between the hall and... This is now when one night he was argumentative. He was standing at the door between the hall and the living room. And my mother was on the chair inside and I was standing by my mother. And he said, one down and two to fucking go. Meaning me and my mother next. Imagine saying that to a woman that had just buried her husband. You know, it's, it's cruel. It's cruel. The cruelty. You're listening to Beast, the murder of Nora Sheehan, a Crime World podcast. This is episode four. You know, he's committed an awful lot of assaults. He's, you know, a criminal in many senses, but he's probably not a natural born killer and he probably hasn't been stalking the country killing women and hiding their bodies. I mean, he kills her and he literally pulls it into the side of the road and throws her body in like rubbish over, this, over, a, over a wall. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be the most panicked he's been. But I, what I find incredible is he's prolific in his sex assaults and everything during the 80s. It doesn't put him off. It doesn't scare him off. No, no. He just does it and he seems to be able to move on. I've yeah. got away with that. yeah. I've got away with that. He's always done that. All down through the years, he's always done that. I keep on saying that to you. He was never really held accountable. No Long walked free in 1981. The murder charge against him was dropped. The case lay dormant for years. After all, the Gardaí had their man. They were certain he did it. But because of those untimely deaths, there was no way of legally proving it. So what could they do? In the meantime, Long's well-established behaviour didn't change. In 1982, 
he sexually assaulted a woman who was on holiday in Cork. That same year, he violently attacked his neighbour and his wife. There's another sexual assault on his record in 1989, the year his father died. There are violent fights and further sexual crimes throughout the 1990s. These are just the cases we know about, just those that made it to court. And when a French woman was found murdered in West Cork in 1996, Long soon became a person of interest. He was pulled for uh, the French woman. For Sophie Toscan yeah, Plantier. he was. Um, he, and stuff was taken, belonged to him. Mm-hmm. He was very heavily right. pulled for that. Okay. Um, because, you see, he would have frequented through the, the diving. He would have frequented so. that neck of the woods, you know. And um, what happened with that? A fizzled out. Right. It fizzled out whether or not they they didn't find any. Anything. I never heard he was. Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah. No long might have stayed the same, but some other things were changing. First, the law. In 1992, the Criminal Evidence Act was introduced, which meant that copies of documentary evidence, such as the notes of a deceased state pathologist or detective, could be presented as evidence as long as the court was satisfied they were authentic. That alone probably sent shivers down No Long's spine. But there was something else, something even more important. In 1995, DNA testing was successfully used to prosecute someone in an Irish court for the first time. This opened up whole new avenues of investigation for police, and it meant that old cases, cases that had never been solved, now had a chance of being resolved, if the evidence was there. My name is Alan Bailey. I'm a retired member of the Gal Shikana. I served 40 years until 2011. When I retired, I was sergeant in charge of the Garda Cold Case Unit, which had been set up in 2007 by the commissioner to uh, examine the files on a number of unsolved murders. Prior to that, I had served for 13 years as national coordinator on Operation Trace, the specialist task force uh, looking at the case of six missing women in the in the Vanishing Triangle area of the country. In 2007, the Garda Commissioner had established the Cold Case Unit. At that stage, going through the archives, you could see, you see that between 1980 and 2007, there's 200 unsolved murders outstanding in, in the country, and it effectively meant that you had 200 people actually getting away with murder, is the way it was put to us. So we were, uh, Christy Mangan, Detective Chief Superintendent, was tasked with setting up a, a specialist unit that would examine the cold case, the files, which are held at that stage in the archives in Santry, with a view to seeing what cases were available and what cases were suitable for a, a cold case review. There were six of us on the unit, and uh, it was in, deliberately kept as a tight unit, the idea being that we'd... Uh, take on a particular case and maybe half the unit would take one case, another half the another case, but without kind of getting too far, to spread too far wide. Uh, the first few months of the unit were spent in training. I was trained in England by the British police. I was then sent to Vancouver in Canada. I was trained by the Royal Canadian Mountain Police at their college. I did a few courses with the FBI at Quantico on crime profiling. So we were well-grounded in crime investigation by the time we got dug into our cases. The approach to uh, 
review of cold cases. It's a totally different aspect of crime. I mean, if if you look at it, that normally if a crime is committed, the guardy like the fire brigade rush to the scene, and there's a, an instant room set up, and there's people put out of offices so we can have our instant room and things like that. But in a cold case unit, it's unique in the respect that uh, you more or less get to pick and choose the case you're going to investigate on the basis that you'll visit the archives you know, using a weighting matrix, you'll decide what cases are, are suitable, as in well, there's evidence here or that can be moved on, there's witnesses that should be re- revisited or there's exhibits that should be submitted for DNA. And in that way, you're able to more or less pick and choose your cases. Would the DNA be top priority in them? Well, it wouldn't be the main priority, but then there's witnesses, and maybe people with alibi witnesses, you're saying to yourself, well, maybe with the passage of time, it's time to revisit that alibi witness. Times times change those relationships, and, you know, let's go talk to this person, see, are they still as adamant as ever that the culprit spent the night with them when you were saying he was away and murdered somebody? Did the training teach you how to put together that matrix? Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. And it also, more importantly, taught you how to deal with both the victims, the secondary victims of the crimes, and the former guard, in many cases, who were involved in the investigation. The last thing you wanted to do was to visit a guard station or a retired member and say, I'm here to correct your mistakes. That's not what we were about. We were there to assist in the investigation. Uh, the likes of, there's a number of cases that were a very high profile at the time they were committed. But then a couple of weeks, we move on, we have another atrocity, and all of a sudden today's crime is tomorrow's statistic. You, when you start, you have 200 files. Yeah. So where is Nora Sheehan sitting in the matrix? Well, when we start out in, in the archives, um, you, you start, we're starting in 1980, so Nora Sheehan's case is not too far into the bundle. And I, I mean, there's a number of striking things about this case when you when you remove the file and study it. The fact, the first thing, of course, was the fact that a suspect has been identified at the time, and we we quickly established that suspect was still alive. So, in that respect, that was your number one priority. Uh, the, the exhibits that were there were still preserved, were still available, and were still suitable for submission for DNA examination. So in that respect, she would have been one of the earlier cases that that we were prepared to move on, sort of. So she was top of your bundle as such? Top of the bundle, yeah. And I think within two or three months of us identifying the case, we had a sample brought to England for for analysis. When you pick a case like that, like where do you begin reinvestigating something? Well, when when you start, the first thing you must do is go to the family and advise the family that you're going to reopen the case. And you have to be aware of all the attendant publicity that's going to, you know, the family are going to have to endure. So it's very important that you address the family, you let them know you're doing it, why you're doing it, you know. You're not going to say we're just chancing it, you're going to have to say we feel that uh, it's, it's, it'll be a worthwhile operation to reopen the case. Um, there's normally a family liaison officer appointed that will stay in touch with the family and keep them abreast of developments as you go along. But they, they, that's the priority, is to let the family know. Another big issue then is to visit uh, former guard members, let them know that, you know, they were centrally involved in the investigation. You're not, you're not telling them that you're there to correct their mistakes, but you're there, look, you brought us so far, we hope to be able to bring it that little bit further, given DNA and such like. So when you were reading through the file, the pages of the paper, could you kind of 
was a movie playing out in your head as regards what had happened that night. Uh, yeah, and uh, you, and you can see what happened because she she left the South Infirmary Hospital that night. She was there. She tried to break up a fight between two dogs at the home, and then unfortunately, for some reason, she went to the hospital on her own. She left the hospital on her own. I suppose she was considered very vulnerable. She was known, known for one thing, one habit she had, and that was waving at cars. Did that contribute to, was she waving at this car that no Long was driving by? And did that, on, that one act contribute to her death? You're looking at that in your file and saying to yourself, you know, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time and all that, but to think that that's something as innocuous as that may have caused to be selected by Long as, an, as his victim and that she got brought, caused her death. And what could you see happen next after she got into his car? Well, I can see, definitely, no doubt, that she was brought to a secluded area where she was raped and murdered and her body dumped. And reading the statements of the time, then the, the guard, the, the, there's, there's two two men out walking, two forestry workers that found the body. And you can read how upset they were at what they'd found. And they couldn't bring themselves to actually describe to the guardy we found a body, we found something terrible. And the guard went out to see it. And even the guard's statement at the time, by by today's standards, you'd be saying you found the body to lying at such an angle and the clothing was... Even reading his statement at the time, you could see how it affected him, that this 50-odd-year-old woman had been admitted dead like that, you know. And you look at the lace of Nora and, I mean, she's 20-odd years dead when we come to the file and you're saying to yourself, and no closure for her or for her family, you know. And it's a lot of the cases like that, they'd move you because it's so incomplete, you know, and there are no answers and people are left wondering what did happen to loved ones, why it happened and were they responsible in some way or was there something they did? For me, I have to say, I always thought this one was slightly unique because no long was identified so quickly. Oh, yeah. He was arrested yeah. Yeah. and he was brought before the courts and he had luck on his side that he walked free because yeah. of yeah. the deaths yeah. of two people. But to him, that was luck. But why had nobody tried again? And that, that was the problem. That was, I think that's the one thing we noticed with the, with the cold case unit was all this effort had been put into the original investigation. It had been progressed... To, to court, especially with Noah Long, especially that he he had been charged, you know, and all of a sudden then it uh, it it just stopped, and it, it seemed that that was as far as it was brought. It wasn't so much abandoned, but certainly was put in the back burner. Well, that's as far as we can bring it. Was that out of disappointment? Absolutely, a huge disappointment to the investigators. I have no doubt about that. Um, I've done in my own career. I've, I've come across this where you think you have everything, all your T's crossed and I's dotted, and the DPP laughs and they say no, no. But I mean, as as professionals, you must accept that. Certainly, with, with Nora, you couldn't see how much further, given the, what the guardie had at the time, the tools they had, you couldn't see how much further they could progress it. Unless Noel Long came in and said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I did it. Or someone came in and said, Noel told me he did it. Mm. And I suppose that's all, you're, that's all you're left with hoping for, really. And that's where DNA was such a game changer. Mm. Okay, when we came to set up as a unit in 2008, I suppose the one tool we had in our toolbox that uh, investigators didn't have up to that was we had DNA. And even by comparison to today's DNA, 
it was still relatively new tool at that stage. I mean, your first DNA conviction here was in 1996. So it's only that long in existence, but it had moved on even that much that we could revisit cases and maybe if the exhibits were available, we could submit them for a DNA testing. And in that way, we had an advantage that the original investigators didn't have. The cold case unit might have had an advantage, but it still took a long time for their work to yield results. They began looking at the case in 2008, and it was eight years before they handed their findings back to Bandon Garda Station in 2016. It took another six years after that for no long to be arrested and charged. It's difficult for anyone to say why everything took as long as it did, The cold case unit is a small team with lots of open cases and constantly shifting priorities, so these things can just take time. However, the evidence in this case was solid. The semen sample taken from Nora Sheehan's body in 1981 had been well preserved by Forensic Science Ireland, meaning it was available now for analysis that hadn't been possible back then. So too a blood stain taken from the original investigation. These pieces of evidence were analysed in the UK in 2009 and 2010, and Dr. Mary Cassidy signed off on two separate reports, examining the potential causes of Nora Sheehan's death. After that, they waited. It took a while, but when the time came, the evidence was finally ready to reveal the truth about what happened to Nora Sheehan. Did you meet the cold case detectives? I did, some of them. And did they speak to you about anything else that he was suspected of? Um, or were they just purely focused on this? No, we talked in general. We talked in general about... I remember we talked in depth about the woman from Mitchellstown because that was in court. That was a big case in the courthouse in Cork. She was the woman that was in the, that brought into the derelict... She she? was the hitchhiker as far as I know. Okay. He could have taken her into a derelict place, but she was, she got a lift, I know, from him. And it was a van he was driving at that time, not a car. Oh, she was very badly assaulted by him. But I think that was a suspended sentence from what I know. But I know that there was a lot of media Mm -hmm. around, around that I remember my mother sitting in the house and I remember her, she got into the habit at the time of rocking and she'd be like that. She, oh my God, oh my God, how are we going to lift this down? What are we going to do? We have to move, we have to move. I mean, he put my mother and father through unmerciful pain and suffering. And one of the judges recently said when he attacked that man on the head with the iron bar, that he put him behind bars for 12 months. He said, not one scintilla of remorse. I'm here, he said, I have a a 65-year-old man in front of me, he said. And that's very unusual, he said, to have a man of that age in front of me, he said, with this type of assault. That's usually, he said, for the younger man. The the hot-blooded younger man that can't control his temper. But he said, not somebody 65 years old, he said, you know, and not a scintilla, he said, of remorse. So he never looked at that judge or the person he injured and gave any indication whatsoever 
that he had any sorrow for what he had done. No Long never did show any remorse or any sorrow for what he'd done to anyone. He never broke down and confessed. He never learned the error of his ways or pledged to turn over a new leaf. Instead, the convictions piled up. The violence, the sexual assaults, the incidents kept coming right up to recent years when that attack on a man with an iron bar landed him in prison for a year. And in the background, thanks to the work of the cold case unit, the evidence against him for the murder of Nora Sheehan was building up too. He'd been able to ignore it for 40 years, but that was about to change. He believed he got away with the perfect murder. He was wrong. You've been listening to Beast, the murder of Nora Sheehan, a Crime World podcast presented by me, Nicola Talent, and produced by Ian Mullaney and Clodamini. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.